Hi, this is Brent Skousen, youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. Thank you for tuning in today to another lesson taught by W. Cleon Skousen. Today's lecture is number 28 on the Old Testament, given in 1973 to his university class. It is unscripted and unedited. The text used today is from the Bible, 2 Samuel chapters 1-5, through 5, supplemented by Dr. Skousen's book, The 4,000 Years, which can be found online, or if you prefer to listen, check it out at audible.com. Today we cover chapter 4, David Becomes King of Israel. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! Alright, now David. Remember David? Okay. We've got David in the predicament. And I want to go very fast because i got to catch up with you. <clears throat> i got to get out of Florida or I'll never do it. Get over to Israel. Um, I wanted to just mention uh, this one thing about David because it comes up in the text. <laughs> When David was over here in Gidi, what did Saul promise to do? Remember, he almost he cut off Ankhbi's cloak and could have killed him, but he didn't, and, and so he held up. What did Saul say about uh, the future king of Israel? Who's going to be king in the future? He admits it. He admits David's going to be king. This is a strange line. You're going to, you're going to be king, and just take care of my don't don't do anything bad to my children, please. And David said, yes, when I take over, I'll do anything that you That's a strange operation here. And then he went home, and uh, this was the end of the matter. You get David uh, uh, having this experience, however, down on the desert when uh, uh, the people of Ziph betrayed him that second time. He comes over into Judah, and Ziph, uh, they said, come on down, you're getting this time for sure. And when he chased uh, David, David apparently went around these highlands here because uh, Saul went right down onto the desert toward Beersheba, which is about right here. He got down on the desert, and night came, and he dug up his trench and got down in it and put up his banner with his sword, uh, uh, his spear with his banner on it, which is customary in those days. As his water crews might want a little drink during the night, you know, he has that up at the head. And uh, we've got uh, his commander-in-chief, who's his first cousin, sleeping beside him very closely. What's his name? Dad. What was it again? Dad. And uh, uh, David up high here, uh, looking down on them, and uh, finally he says, uh, let's go down. Let's go down. I want to volunteer. Who volunteered? His nephew, Abishai. And so they go down, and they get right up close through the dark. They found their way. It, it reminds you of Tianka, you know, in the Book of Mormon. You get right in there, and there he is in the trench. And I says, there he is. And then David makes this statement, which tells us why he hadn't killed Saul before. Why wasn't he going to kill Saul? He was anointed of the Lord, and it was up to whom to execute him if he was to be replaced. Either he will die or be killed in battle, and that's not my assignment to have him die. And when he's dead, then I'll assume my proper role. Meanwhile, let's take the spear with a little flag on it and so forth and, and the cruise of water and depart. So everybody wakes up in the morning and no doubt they missed it. And um, you have that real interesting uh, speech by David who shouts down from a high place that's safe. And um, he said, Abner... This thing is not good, thou hast done. As the Lord liveth, you are worthy to die, because you have not kept your master, the Lord's anointed, safe. 
says, we got his spear and his water cruise, got his canteen up here. Jim Abner's looking up there, he said, that's what happened to it. David came down the night and got it. And uh, you have Saul saying, David, David, is this thy voice, my son? And David said, it is my voice, my lord. And Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do thee harm, because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day. Behold, I played the fool, and have erred exceedingly. So he had. And uh, David says, um, Behold, the king's spear, let one of the young men come over and fetch it. And Saul replied, Blessed be thou, my son David. Thou shalt both do great things, and also thou shalt still prevail. You're going to be king. But you see, he doesn't uh, turn over the crown or anything. You're going to make it yet. We'll both keep trying, but I think you're going to win. Um, Saul then returned to his place. And it was obvious to David that things uh, never could be worked out with Saul. And so that's when he fled over and joined the Philistines. Now, if you watch this story carefully, you'll notice that David probably already had, already had intelligence information that the Philistines were now ready for a direct confrontation with Israel, such as they had not had before with an all-out war in which uh, the Israelites would be permanently conquered. And, of course, David is in a strategic position as the future king of Israel. You must always remember that he's looking upon himself as the future king of Israel, he therefore goes among the Philistines deliberately to sabotage their war effort. And you, you see him using stratagem right from the beginning. And he goes in as a fifth column, uh, one of the most difficult and dangerous uh, assignments that you can have in military time. And he goes to a place where he was already familiar. What town? He goes to Gath, Goliath's old hometown. Probably got a monument to him there somewhere. <laughs> and, and who is the king? Who's the king of Gath? Achish. Can you remember that? Achish. Uh, Achish is the king. Does he welcome uh, David or not? Uh, we're not sure whether he even knew that uh, that insane man that he had kicked out some years before was still the same David. We're not even sure he even recognized him as such. Um, but in any event, he welcomes him, and he has 600 men that are all uh, battle-tested, and it's just great. Uh, but David said, we really need a community of our own where we can settle our families. And so they gave him a Philistine city. What was it called? Ziklag. And it's down toward Beersheba. I see Beersheba's on the desert. And halfway between here and Gerar, or about right in here, approximately, it was Ziklag. <coughs> we don't know exactly, but we know precise, uh, approximately. And so he's doing... Uh, He's doing pretty well there, and then he hears that the war is now to begin. The rendezvous point for the Philistine armies was at Aphek, which is there on the plains of Sharon. Now some of the richest orange groves and banana uh, groves you'd, you'd ever see. So all of the armies of the Philistines rendezvous to plan their strategy, to coordinate their chariots, and get their commanders together, and so forth. And lo and behold, here comes Achish with 600 of the enemy in his ranks. He said, what goes here? David, the Goliath killer. Well, he said, I, he's my elite guard. I mean, these are the people I trust with my own head. 
I trust my life with these men. Well, they said, we don't ours. And, uh, but he said, I swear that, they, that David is all right. Well, they said, look, this is exactly what we do to people all the time. We're always sending over people pretending to be friends. And then in a war, you know, it goes on. And he might be all right. We can't take a chance. Send him home. So Achish was very apologetic. And of course, David stood on his dignity. Imagine not trusting him. And uh, so he went on back down home, and he got to Ziklag, and lo and behold, the place was in what? Ashes. Burned to the ground, raided, all their wives and children carried off with all their property, which was considerable. And they found out that all the surrounding villages had been likewise raided and taken advantage of, and so um, it was a heartbreak for David. It's a terrible experience when you come back and you don't know what the women have all been ravished, the kid, children have all been killed. I mean, this is a terrible human experience that's been repeated thousands and thousands of times in human history when it actually had happened. So the prophet of the Lord was uh, asked to seek from the Lord some instructions. The Lord said they are safe. Your wives and children are safe. Um, it was the Amalekites that came and did the raiding. And if you hurry, uh, you can get them back. And boy, did they hurry. They were tired when they got there, but they really pushed. They pushed so hard that how many casualties occurred? Just 200 of them just dropped out. They just had to stop before they went on down into the hot desert of the Negev. And so um, they pursued them, and en route they had an informer suddenly say, I know exactly where they went and where to find them. Who was he? What, what nationality? Egyptian. And how did he happen to know where they went? He'd been a servant of one of the Amalekites, and he got sick, and they left him to die on the desert. He was just very anxious to cooperate in every possible way. When, when David and his men came inside of the camp of the Amalekites, they hit it so hard that the only ones who escaped were whom? Those who had camels and could gallop away. If they had a camel, they'd get on it and get out of there fast, they, they were able to make it. Everybody else was captured. And they recovered their wives and their children and all the loot from all the Philistine cities because they didn't have any protection either. And these Amalekites had gone up there uh, like uh, birds of prey, you see, and raided all these cities. So they went back to Ziklag and, Ziklag and had just arrived there and had just started rebuilding, cleaning up things, gathering a few things around, getting a thing cleaned up. And in comes a man all covered with dirt and had soil on his head, it says, and boy, he was in terrible shape. And uh, he says, bad news, bad news, bad news. David said, what's happened? And he had a story to tell. Now, what really had happened is that the Philistines had gone up with all their chariots to the one place where you could fight Israel with chariots. Can't fight with chariots in the mountains. Use them for transportation on the roads. But you've got to have wide open plains for chariot fighting. And there's the only place you can do it. And some of the most famous battles in the world have been fought on these plains. These are some of the most beautiful, fertile fields now of Israel. Um, <laughs> on the left, this part of the valley um, slopes upward just a little bit. And... Uh, then it slopes downward. It's generally referred to as the area of Jezreel. Jezreel. And um, when 
Saul looked down from the mountains of Gilboa, which are the mountains there of Israel, and he looked down on Jezreel Valley and saw these terrible uh, forces. Uh, he knew that only with the help of God could they possibly survive. He didn't have Samuel to help him. He needed somebody to uh, inquire of God. Now, what was the name of his priest? He had a high priest, Zadok. And uh, was Zadok able to get a, 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 a revelation? Not a word from the Lord. The Lord has nothing to tell Saul, even through his prophet. Now, sometimes this happened to Joseph Smith. The brethren would say, Joseph, ask the Lord. We don't know what to do, so ask the Lord. At, at one time, they didn't know whether or not the uh, people at Kirtland, oh, excuse me, no, it was Kirtland. The people at Kirtland should move down to Missouri. And uh, so Joseph went and asked the Lord, um, should we go and how should we go? And he came back and he said, uh, there's no answer. And so Hiram said, we'll inquire again. We need to know. So he said, no, I don't think I should. Oh, Hiram said, please do. I, I don't think we should depend on our own judgment in this matter. He told us to come to Kirtland. Maybe we should stay in spite of all the persecution and murder and everything that's being threatened against us. So Joseph went and asked again. No answer. I think this is real interesting to watch how the Lord works with his people sometimes. So they held a council meeting, and Joseph said, Now, Hiram, you're older than I am. Let's hear your counsel first. What do you suggest we do? In other words, we're just human beings. Now, our Heavenly Father's left us all on our own to see if we can make a decision. So they made a decision, and after they made it and were all ready to go, then the Lord said, that's fine. That's just fine. Real interesting. Uh, he just wanted them to get used to working out a few things themselves. You know, some people are like that. They're, they're like a person who's down driving a tank, you know. Got a little isolate, can't see very much. And the man who's standing up in the hatchway, while he's looking out, and he'll tap one shoulder or the other shoulder, he'll turn right, turn left, and there's a guy the ice slip, and he's turning around. Some people want to run their lives that way. If you got a little slip in front of them, they say, let me follow this one or this one. They want them to tell them everything. They don't want to make any decisions themselves at all. And the purpose of this life was to learn the difference between good and evil. And the only way we can do that is to have a, us make the wrong choices once in a while. Isn't that right? And our Heavenly Father does that deliberately. He just holds back. And he says, okay, find out. You decide and find out. You're going to fall over a cliff. But it's all right. You, you, you'll be smarter when you get up. <laughs> That's why one of the prophets says, be thankful for everything that happens to you, even the disasters, because you learn so much from it. Well, this is true. <clears throat> In any event, when he saw all of those hosts, he decided he just needed help. So Saul, not having a prophet to call upon, uh, decided to see if he could make contact with the spirit world and somehow talk to Samuel. Now, he'd already cleansed the lands, the land of uh, mediums and spiritualists. They called them witches. A medium was a witch. That's what they called a witch. She had contact with the adversary and contact with the spirit world and, and could make these uh, Ill illegal communications between the, across the veil. So he'd had the land cleansed of them. So he said to his soldier, I've got to make contact with Samuel. I've just got to know about tomorrow with that folks out there. We've got to know. So one of his soldiers said, well, as you know, you cleaned out the land, and, uh, but I do know where one is. 
And if you promise that you won't hurt her, I'll tell you where she is. Well, we said anything, just so I can get to Samuel. Well, he said she's over in Endor. Endor? Yes, Endor. That's across Jezreel. That's right, but that's where she is. It's the only one I know of. You mean I better go through the camps of the Philistines? Well, she's in Endor. So somehow they maneuvered it. And he, sat, he fasted all day, and he got to the woman, and he asked her if she would uh, make communication for him. Oh, she said, you know, I could get killed for this. And because of Saul, you know, Saul's issued an edict to kill all the witches. And he said, I guarantee you'll be all right. You just make the contact. So she said, who do you want me to call up? And he said, Samuel. Samuel? Prophet? Yes, Samuel the prophet. All right, stand by. <laughs> well, after you ran into her seance, and if you've ever seen this done, once is enough. Um, it's a pretty spooky thing. Pretty soon she sees things coming up out of the earth. There went Elohim, and something else come up, and, and so pretty soon she sees a little old man, he got a shawl over his head, and, and she describes him, what she's seeing, and Saul says, oh, that's Samuel. And suddenly the woman starts saying, when has thou brought me up from my sleep? I still hear those voices in England. When they do this, how do they talk? And Saul says, what about the battle? Oh, we'll be lost. Saul collapsed. He never saw anything. This is a fake, you see. This whole thing is a phony. Evil spirits do this all the time. You want to see uh, George Washington? Or you want to talk to Abraham Lincoln? Or anything else that's handy, that's of interest to you? They'll play these roles. And you see, there was no problem for this spirit to predict to Saul that all would be lost. Anyway, he collapsed. They got some soup into him. He hadn't eaten all day. He was very weak. And they finally went back to the mountains of Gilboa and got his forces around and said, we attack tomorrow. But his heart was out, gone from him. They went down and faced those chariots. Now, it doesn't specifically say that these particular Philistine chariots had the scythes on them. And that was very typical of the times. They put these long three-foot scythes, two or three of them on every wheel. And they're, they're sticking out this way. Then they put scythes or spears on the horses and the tongues out in front. And then they just take these chariots and just drive them into an infantry. So you can imagine what happened. They just churn them to pieces. And it avoids a lot of unpleasant hand-to-hand -hand combat that way. So uh, the Israelite forces were just destroyed almost instantly. And uh, Saul fled up into the mountains of Gilboa. <clears throat> now these actually are the mountains of Ephraim. This whole section here. These are the mountains of Judah. These are the mountains of Ephraim. And that is... The mountain of Gilboa, which is that end looking down on Jezreel. This is Carmel Mountain. The pass in between is called Megiddo, after which the Battle of Armageddon uh, is named, which is yet to be fought. <clears throat> and so he fled up into those mountains, uh, trying to escape, followed by the crown prince, Jonathan, and his two younger brothers. Uh, they stayed behind their father, who had his armor-bearer with uh, bodyguard with him. And um, 
in an attempting to provide a delaying action. All three of the boys were killed. All three of the men were killed. But it did allow Saul and his bodyguard to escape up into the crags and the cliffs there of the mountains up above Jezreel Valley. And as they disappeared out of reach of the chariots, why, they just let a blast of arrows go after them. And then they disappeared out of sight and they assumed they had escaped. In fact, they apparently didn't even know that they'd killed Jonathan and the other two in all the haste and the excitement knocking down other soldiers, etc. They apparently didn't realize they'd wiped out practically the whole royal family. And uh, one of the arrows had, had uh, penetrated um, the armor of Saul, and having to run in this armor was bad anyway. It was so heavy that, uh, you remember, David couldn't even fight in it. Great big man's big armor. Anyway, he gets up there in the crags. He's hot. He's got the, uh, uh, probably having a terrible time breathing, uh, arrows in the back and shoulders, chest, somewhere they had gotten him. And he knew he would die. He couldn't go any further. And he, or they would capture him and torture him to death uh, if they caught him in a wounded condition. And so he said to his bodyguard, all right, take my sword and kill me. And the bodyguard said that he uh, wouldn't think of such a thing. He would give his life defending Saul, but he'd never take Saul's life even on command. And so Saul, in those days, the, 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 the mail, the uh, armor, was one little plate, mail plate over top of another. And it was so that they could bounce up and down. The air kind of gets into the body while you're fighting. Uh, but at the same time, anything hits it on the front, why it, it will deflect the sword or spear, whatever it is, arrow. And so he just lifted up one of these plates and put the sword in his solar plexus and fell forward and killed himself. And then his guard, you see, bodyguard, uh, in shock at what uh, the suicide of his king and everything, he just lifted up a little male plate and fell on his sword. So he, everybody's dead now. It's like Hamlet. And uh, <laughs> then along comes this Amalekite. He looks down, the king's dead, his bodyguard's dead, everybody's dead, and oh, he says, David's the man now. No doubt about it. David is the man. I said, what can I do to get on the, be on the right side of David? Well, second little plan here. So he reaches down, he takes the signet ring and the crown off of the king's head and takes off for the south. And comes to David at Ziklag and says, bad news, bad news, Saul and Jonathan are dead. And David said, are you sure? He said, yes, yes, I'm sure. How are you sure? Because I was there. Go on, tell me more. Uh, how'd you get the crown and the signet ring? Well, he said, I came and the king was still alive. And, and um, uh, he asked me to kill him, and so I did. I brought the crown and the signet rings to you. You killed the king? Now, many a time a man, when he's badly wounded, uh, this happens, uh, GIs will tell you about their experience where a buddy is badly hit and they say, shoot me, shoot me, kill me, shoot me. The pain is so terrible. And the, the duty of a fellow GI is to ignore those pleas. Sure, he's in terrible anguish, but we can save him, get him out of there. Uh, but this Malachite, you see, had gone ahead and killed the king. And uh, it's, it's so angered, David, and he said to his, his troops, you've heard him from his own mouth. He deliberately killed the king, and we don't kill kings. And down he went, down with the Amalekite. And I guess when he got the spirit world, he said, now that, that was a lie I never should have told. <laughs> anyway, he joined um, David and Jonathan, I mean Saul and Jonathan. And then you have this, this very famous 
psalm of the bow, the great psalm of David, uh, singing about the Saul that had once been great. Uh, when he and Jonathan had first started out beating the Moabites over there, my, they'd been great generals. They'd fought so magnificently, and that's the king, Saul, that David wrote about in his psalm. You know, this always happens at funerals. Even enemies come. Even enemies come and say, well, Jay, a lot of, a lot of great things about him, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the, the, this particular psalm deals with the days of greatness. Uh, now, David had a responsibility here. He'd been anointed king by the Lord, and so what does he do? Uh, he finally got his uh, prophet there to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord says, go to Hebron. Now, um, this is the Dead Sea, in the mountains. Jerusalem was just a little village with a big fortress. Bethlehem, seven miles south, and Hebron, 16 miles south, below that. And here's Beersheba here, and uh, Gath right here. In any event, uh, he went to Hebron, and of course when he arrives there, uh, many of these people, like those of Ziph, who have betrayed him, recognize that he was, after all, anointed king, and they ought to make him king. And he's of the Jewish tribe, so this is fine. We'll now have the king of Israel, our king. So, uh, he was anointed king, and boy, they really turned out. There was a tremendous, it was a great event, and he was anointed king. Now that's the second anointing. He's going to have a third one in due time, seven years from now. But for the moment, why, he has uh, uh, the second anointing. Now, he said to the Jews, this gave him a chance to find out about the killing of Saul. And he found out that what had happened, the uh, Philistines didn't know they'd killed Saul until the next day. They went up stripping the bodies of all their wealth and, and their armor and everything worthwhile they had on them. Lo and behold, there's the crown prince and his two brothers. And then they went across Saul. So they took those four bodies, they cut off Saul's head as a souvenir, took his armor, and then they took the four bodies and nailed them to the wall of Bathsheba, which is right uh, in here, Philistine city right there. Uh, and over here, this is called Gilead. It's also called Transjordan. It's also called the land of the Ammonites. But it's Jordan of today. Uh, but the, the Israelites at Jabeth Gilead heard that the bodies of their king and uh, the, the three princes were nailed to the wall. And so in the nighttime they went and got them and buried them. And David was so pleased when he heard about this. Notice how, what he did. He writes a letter to them commending them for what they've done. And he said, and uh, incidentally... Uh, uh, I have now been anointed king down here in uh, Judah. Um, in other words, I'm available for the rest of Israel anytime the other ten tribes want me. But they didn't catch on at all. Just good, subtle rustics. I mean, they, they didn't mean to think of them. So he goes on here uh, and has uh, six or seven sons while he's down, while he's king at, uh, at Hebron. Now, it wasn't long before um, his soldiers got together with the soldiers of um, the new king of the northern ten tribes. 
because Abner decided he's the first cousin of Saul. He wants their house to be perpetuated. So he appoints the 40-year-old Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, to be the new king, and he's just a little, uh, little father trying to get along the world, kind of a clerical mentality. Uh, he does what he's told to do. And uh, so everything goes along pretty good. And his soldiers then, under Abner, meet with the soldiers of David, under whom? Joab, who is David's nephew, at Gibeon. At Gibeon. That's right down near Jerusalem. Remember I told you before that Gob, Gibeah, Ramah, Samuel's home, and Gibeon. So that's right down here, just right there. On the line of Benjamin. Tribe of Benjamin uh, inheritance. So they meet there together and they're just kind of sizing each other up, I think. Because they're, 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 they're trying to settle difficulties. These people keep having wars. Uh, Joab has a war here just very shortly here, right at the time David's trying to get unity, you notice. In any event, they decide to have a little joust. And so they get 12 men from each side, and they're just supposed to have a joust, you know. Everybody parries and thrusts, but, uh, you know, pull your punches. But each side got together and said, let's get them. There was definite hostility here. So when they give the order to start the play, each one grabs the other, and you got mutual um, massacre here. And of course, when they all went down in a heap in their own gore, why uh, the two armies that were sitting there expecting to be entertained, they said, foul play, and they started fighting. And um, the Jews uh, overcame Abner and his men very fast, and so Abner roared, retreat, retreat, and they started heading off uh, down, I guess, toward the river. And um, en route, Joab's young, youngest brother started catching up with Abner. And he's fleet of foot, he's younger, and he's right on the heels of this old flea-bitten general of King Saul, and he's getting closer and closer to him. What's his name? Asel, Asel, and he's getting closer and closer, and so finally, Abner uh, yells back, Turn thee aside from following me. Wherefore should I smite thee to the ground? How then should I hold up my face to Job thy brother? I've got a feud going on here. Now stop it, don't chase me. Chase somebody else. Leave me alone. I don't have to kill you, but Asel is not to be uh, deprived of this great honor of, of killing Abner, and so he's right on top of him. And so Abner, the, the old timer, he knows exactly what to do. Here's this inexperienced uh, uh, young Jew running behind him. I'm going to get you. Uh, he's wide open, you see, right behind him. And Abner took one good look and took that real heavy war javelin that he had in his arm and just thrust it back and it went right through him. Killed him on the spot. Then they really had to run. That was exactly what Abner would fear, that would just create a feud between the two families. So they got up on a little acropolis of stone and rock, and they were fighting. Finally, Abner yelled down, and he said, Joab, what are you trying to do? Spill all the blood of Israel? You've killed a lot of my men anyway. Let's go home. Bury our dead. And Joab was so heartsick at Asel's death, he said, yes, stop the fighting. Stop the fighting. So they all went home, buried their dead. And several hundred, you see, were killed of Abner's men. Only a few of the Jews were killed. But Abner went back home, and he hadn't been there very long before a strange thing happened. He fell in love with one of the concubines of Saul, and he married her. 
Now, this is a bad sign for Ishbosheth. What, what does this mean? In ancient times, you marry the widow of a king. It is a signal that you have aspirations to become king. And Ishbosheth was very upset about it. And Abner said, in effect, you little pipsqueak, I put you on the throne, I'll marry anybody I want, etc., etc., etc. And he got his feelings hurt and rushed down to join David. So I think I'll join you now. I think I could get the northern ten tribes and I'll join you too. Oh, David said, this is a nice change of affairs. But I uh, like to have a couple little things done before we do this, before I take over. I want who? I want my Michelle back. Oh, don't worry about it. We'll get Michelle for you. And then he made a contact with Ishbosheth and said, I want my Michelle back. And I think all the brothers and sisters of Michelle had probably felt very badly about what their father had done to David and Michelle and splitting them up and marrying her uh, to uh, uh, Faltiel. So uh, the king agreed to it, and Abner agreed to it. The next thing that Michelle knew, she was a political pawn being hauled off by Abner down to Hebron. And who's following close behind, just sobbing his heart out? Faltiel. And finally Abner looked around and said, Oh my goodness, this will never do. Taking Michelle back home, here's her husband blubbering along behind. This, is, this won't do. So he said to Faltiel, Go home, go home, go on back. You can't come on down. And so uh, he did. And, and uh, for Michelle, she had a rather unhappy life anyway. Father is psychopath, and her husband taken away from her. And she really loved this faulty. After David left, why well, she, her father made her marry him, and she loved him. And you see, David had no idea of this until he tried to take Michelle into her, to his arms, and and she gave him one of these stiff stick embraces, you know. And um, so he put his arms around her, but uh, she was like a trunk of a tree. <laughs> and uh, so he realized then that uh, something was bad but he couldn't do anything about it because what does she represent she represents unity between the north and the south she is a political symbol and now he has to live with her and she is a shrew and from here on she makes his life miserable and finally he uh, he really gets cross with her a little later on in the story and it says that she never had any children that's just to tell you in biblical language that uh, that was everything was off. <laughs> so, uh, now Abner immediately left to get the uh, the kingdoms all joined together, and um, he he was barely out of sight when Job arrives. And where'd Job been? Where'd he been? Fighting our ancestors. He'd been fighting some of the northern ten tribes. And when he found out that Abner had been there, he said, I know what he was doing. He was casing the place. He'll come back and wipe out everybody. Send a message to him to come back. So Abner, he thought, oh, sure, Joe and I are going to be good friends now. And he came back, and Abner walks in, and, and Joab walks up to him and says, How art thou, and how do things go by thee, my brother? Grabbed him by the chinny-chin-chin and put a knife into him, and that was that. Oh, David was just horrified and angry, and so he announced that he had nothing to do with this terrible murder, and uh, who did he make the chief mourner? <laughs> so I'm walking along here, crocodile tears, <laughs> and when they mourn in the Middle East, they mourn, oh, they make 
make a big noise and so forth, and he had to do all of that as they went to the grave. Well, they had finally convinced the people that there was, uh, that David had only aspirations to spread unity and peace among the people, and so they accepted him, and now you have the third anointing of King David, and a couple hundred thousand or so, the troops all turned out, representing from all the tribes. So it was a great affair, and now at last you have king, have him king of all Israel. Now he wanted to move the capital from Hebron, which was the Jewish capital, up to a more neutral place, and so he took it right up to the borders of Judah, right on the borders of Benjamin. And that belonged to some heathens, the Jebusites, a tribe that had a, a mammoth big fortress there. And uh, they insulted him by putting their blind and their lame up on top of this big fortress and saying, David, we don't have to really fight you. These people can take care of us. They can defend the city against you any day. Ooh, that was a mistake. David said, I'll make the next man who climbs inside of that thing and gets up inside and opens the gate. He becomes my next commander-in-chief. So with 600 men, they didn't want a new commander-in-chief. They got behind Joab. And they took him into the Gihon Spring, pushed him up through that waterway, a terrible... Uh, experience actually, uh, modern explorers tell us, who've been up it, and got him inside, he opened the gate, and they captured the city, and David was able to make the Jebusalem, Jebusalem, his new capital, and became called Jerusalem, and Salem means peace, and that was the name of it under Melchizedek, but now it was Jebusalem, today it's Jerusalem, okay?